Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 96. We're going to be taking a break from our regular uh, series in the book of Mark to look at Psalm 96 this morning. Christmas is typically a season that's full of song. It's full of music. And for me this year, that started on November 18th. You remember back at our Thanksgiving service where I was ordained and installed, my oldest daughter, Natalie, sang Rock of Ages at that service. And that was especially sweet for me because that was the song that I had sung to her putting her to bed for the first 10 years of her life. And then we had the Christmas cantata. Do you remember all of the festive music at the Christmas cantata? For me, it was encapsulated, kind of the pinnacle, was my favorite Christmas song was sung, O Holy Night, and Sarah Hodges just absolutely crushed it. And then last week, we had Polly Watkins singing Noel, arranged by Chris Tomlin, and it just pierced my heart. And then we're reminded this morning that we need faith. Lord, give me faith. You see, we need music. And Christmas is typically a season that's full of music. I believe that we're hardwired for music, that God has hardwired our hearts for music. And that's why we have earworms. Are you familiar with earworms? Those songs that get stuck in your head that you can't quite get out. Maybe you have a favorite earworm, Who Let the Dogs Out? Right? That, that just gets stuck in your brain. Uh, or if you have kids who are maybe a little bit older and they were young when Frozen came out, can I tell you how awkward it is when a grown man at work bursts out with Let It Go? Right? That just, that just doesn't work. Or probably my least favorite earworm of all time, It's a Small World. Right? <laughs> If you told me that you had recurring nightmares of being trapped on that ride at Disney, I would empathize with you, right? I think that's like my worst nightmare. We're hardwired for music, right? And music sticks in our memory, and it seeps into our souls. And sometimes listening to music pierces my heart in such a way that I don't know whether to smile or weep. And so I end up doing both at the same time. And, and then that song sticks with me, right? It, it lingers. It stays with me for a while. And it's calling to the deepest longings of my heart. And it's speaking to me of a transcendent beauty beyond words. And Psalm 96 is a song. It would have been set to music. It would have been used in Israel's worship over 3,000 years ago. And we sang it this morning, though that tune was written in 1780. This wasn't the original tune. If we got the original tune, wouldn't that be fun to sing it to the original tune, what Israel was originally singing it to? Psalm 96 is a song. And it belongs in a collection of psalms that are called the Yahweh Malach Psalms. And Malach is the Hebrew word for king. It's Yahweh reigns, right? And Psalms 93 to 99 all talk about the reign of Yahweh as king. 
and James Mays, a commentator, notes that Christians have traditionally used Psalm 96 on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. He says that in that liturgical context, the hymn looks back to the nativity and forward to the second coming. Christ has come and will come again. You see, God's people waited for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. And after the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, was written, there was 400 years of silence. And then Jesus arrived. Then the Messiah came. And that's what Advent means. Advent means arrival. And so as we go through the Advent season, we're rehearsing Jesus' first coming, and we're anticipating his second coming. So here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. Singing an inexhaustible song of joy only comes from knowing that your king, who is full of beauty and strength, is coming to establish a world where everything will be made right. Let me say that again. Singing an inexhaustible song of joy only comes from knowing that your king, who is full of beauty and strength, is coming to establish a world where everything will be made right. And this morning, we'll look at a new song in verses 1 and 2 and 11 and 12. And then we'll look at a great king in verses 2 through 10. And then we'll look at a new world in verses 10 and 13. So we're going to be looking to sing a new song about a new world because of a great king. Look with me, if you will, at Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence this morning, there are some who are deeply discouraged and some who are hurting in this Christmas and holiday season. And there are others who are rejoicing. Father, I pray that in this hour that you would help us to see this beautiful king, that you would help us to see you face to face, and that would begin to give us in our hearts a new song because of a great king with the hope of a new world. Father, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the hope of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would convince the one who preaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, uh, let's look at a new song. Now, interestingly, Psalm 96 is a song that calls for a new song. But there are lots of new songs that are called for in the Bible. Andre, if we get that first slide here. The Bible is full of new songs. Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Isaiah 42 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Revelation 14.3 says, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. You see, there aren't enough songs in the world to contain the praise of God. God's praise is inexhaustible. Songs of praise will echo into eternity and they still won't fill up the full praise of God. They can never match the unmatchable majesty of our heavenly king. And so in verses 1 and 2, this song begins with a threefold command to sing. Can we get the next slide, Andre? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Thanks, Sandra. So we're called to bless the Lord with a new song. But this song is at least 2,700 years old. So in what way are we to understand a new song? How is this song new? Well, the Babylon Bee, are you familiar with the Babylon Bee? It's a humorous Christian website. It says that they've discovered a new translation for sing a new song. And it's sing an old song with a really cool bridge. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure that's what we're after here. In what way is this song new? Well, maybe there's an old song with a new arrangement. Have you ever heard an old song with a new arrangement? It's like you're hearing it again for the first time. I love the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. In fact, six years and eight days ago, that was what Lee walked down the aisle to as we got married. I love the song. But when Stan Wagnon played it this summer and I heard it arranged differently, it was like I heard it again for the first time and I wept, right? Sometimes it can be a new arrangement. But A.A. Anderson suggests that a new song is perhaps best read as an ever new song. 
He says, just as God's care is never ceasing and new every morning, so also the song of his praise must be ever new. He says it's obvious that at some point in time, our psalm was new. That is, it was newly composed. But in its liturgical use, that is, as we sing it, its newness must be sought in the fact that God's praise is inexhaustible. And I think that's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 5.19 when he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord, what? With your heart. You see, I think it's that melody in your heart that's new. It's that melody in your heart that is ever new, that's new morning after morning because God's praise is inexhaustible. Now, in this new song where we're singing God's praise afresh and anew, the psalmist uses repetition to call our attention to particular attributes of God. It's a poetic device. And so he calls our attention first to God's attributes. You see, glory is repeated three times. And strength is repeated twice. Splendor is repeated twice. And he calls our attention to key players. The peoples are referred to five times. The earth three times. The nations twice. And the world twice. And then he focuses on the action of God coming two times to judge three times. The psalmist is focusing our attention. But did you notice who God calls to sing a new song? You might think like we had this morning at the beginning of worship that God would be calling all of his covenant people to sing a new song. All Israel, all Christians, everybody who has the name of God on them. But that's not who's called to sing this song. Did you see it in verse 1? It's sing a new song. Sing to the Lord, what? All the earth. And then look down at verses 11 and 12. This is exactly what's going to happen. It's actually, uh, Andre, if we can get this on the screen here. Let the nations, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Now I want you to look at these verbs here because these verbs have a future sense. The psalmist is telling us of something that will happen in the future. All the earth will sing. You see, at creation, God tells Job that the morning stars sang together. But now all the earth is going to sing again. The heavens and the earth, the sea, the field, the trees. And what is it that they're going to sing? They're going to sing songs of joy. Do you hear the verbs here? Be glad, rejoice, roar, exalt, sing for joy. Can you hear the cacophony of sounds as all creation praises God? Can you picture it? Can you picture the fields and the trees and the sea and the earth and the heaven all rising up to sing together these songs of joy? What is it that causes all of nature to stand and sing? Well, verses 11 and 12 here follow verse 10 
And look at verse 10. Thanks, Jimmy. We can put, or Andre, we can put this slide down here. Say among the nations, verse 10, the Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Malach. It's Yahweh is king. Yahweh reigns because Yahweh is king. Now, just because someone is king doesn't necessarily give you a reason to sing songs of joy, right? What if he's a bad king? What if he's an oppressive tyrant? Then, then you wouldn't want to be singing songs of joy. Have you seen the new trailers for The Lion King? When our girls were growing up, uh, I, I took them to see The Lion King. We watched The Lion King uh, again and again. And, and in this new trailer, as we're remaking The Lion King, you see all these creatures, right? And, and they're beginning to move, and they're traveling someplace, and you realize that they're traveling to Pride Rock. And then you hear Musafa in that James Earl Jones voice say, <clears throat> Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Okay, <clears throat> but a king's time is ruler. <clears throat> Somebody else can do that. But a king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, the sun will set on my time here <clears throat> and will rise with you as the new king. <laughs> and music is playing and Simba gets marked and then he's presented and all creation bows and bows the knee and it's a song of joy because this is the dynasty of a good king who reigns and that's exactly what's happening in psalm 96 in verses 11 and 12 the earth is bursting forth in a cacophony of praise because the psalm tells us that yahweh is a great king who reigns and we see in verses 4 and 5 that he's a great king and we see in verses 2 and 3 that he's a king who saves. And we see in verses 6 through 9 that he's a beautiful king. He's a great king. He's a king who saves. And he's a beautiful king. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 first. For great is the Lord. We have a great king. And greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So there's a contrast here, and the psalmist is contrasting Yahweh with the gods of the peoples. And this is something that happened all the time in ancient Near Eastern culture. All the different people groups had different gods, and so they were always comparing gods. Which god is better? Which god is stronger? It was kind of like seven-year-olds on the playground, right? My daddy's better than your daddy. My daddy can beat your daddy up. But it's not just in ancient Near Eastern culture, right, that gods are compared. It happens in our hearts every day. We're constantly tempted to look to other gods for meaning, identity, value, and worth. Do you know what other gods tempt your heart? Is it power, money, sex, approval, status, image, Right? The psalmist is telling you that these gods, the gods of the peoples, are counterfeit gods. They're false gods. They're really not gods at all. They're just worthless idols. They have done nothing, and they can do nothing. These idols have no worth and no value. 
And while they might look all shiny on the outside, they can never deliver. They can never meet the deepest longings of your heart. So who's stronger? Who wins? Yahweh. By, by a landslide. It, it's not even close. So where should you put your allegiance? Whom should you trust? Whom should you fear? Yahweh. Yahweh is to be feared above all gods. But it's never just that easy, right? I, I didn't just say that, and now you're fearing Yahweh. It doesn't work like that, right? Why? Because our hearts are so entrenched with idols. And so sometimes we have to see those idols and we have to preach the gospel to our hearts in a way that begins to unhinge us from those idols. Power, you are not my life. My life is hid with God and Christ. Money, you are not my life. My life is hid with God and Christ. Sex, you are not my life. My life is hid with God and Christ. Image, you are not my life. My life is hid with God and Christ. Approval, you are not my life. My life is hid with God and Christ. Status, you are not my life. My life is hid with God and Christ. And as we preach the gospel to our hearts, our hearts begin to become unhinged. And then we can say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We have a great king a powerful king who's better than any of your worthless idols. But then we have a king who saves, verses 2 and 3. Andre, can we get this on the screen? A king who saves. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, Let's keep that up there. Here's where an understanding of Hebrew poetry is helpful. Now, in English poetry, you remember back to eighth grade, right? What, what makes English poetry? Well, it's rhyme and meter, right? Well, in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew poetry is defined by parallelism, that one line explains the other line, that the two lines or three lines or four lines work together in concert to give you a stereo hearing of this, of this word, of this language. Right? And so here we see that tell of his salvation is in parallel, explains, is connected to declare his glory. And that's connected to declare his marvelous works. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that God's glory is connected to his marvelous works, probably the works of salvation. And this makes sense because glory has to do with accomplishment. It has to do with victory. Glory has to do with fame or distinction or renown, something worthy of praise. And we don't use the word glory very often these days, but maybe you heard it last night with gridiron glory, right? In the football games of last night. Or maybe you hear it in the context of glory on the battlefield, Right? Victory, accomplishment. Someone takes glory on the battlefield because they've utterly dominated their opponent. Right? Com they've completely overpowered them. And so they're basking in their victory. They're basking in their glory. And what the psalmist is saying is that we see 
the glory, the fame, the renown of Yahweh through the marvelous works of his salvation. A part of God's glory is that he has saved us. And when we see the glory in our salvation, do you know what we're supposed to do with it? We're supposed to tell of his salvation. We're supposed to declare his glory among the nations, among all the peoples. And notice there's a shift in audience. At first, the psalmist is saying, hey, you need to sing to Yahweh. And now he's saying, declare that glory among the nations. Right? It goes from vertical to horizontal. And among the nations is just code for those who aren't part of the covenant people, those who aren't Israel, non-Christians, the heathens. Right? This is talk of missions, of evangelism. In fact, the word tell, in tell of his salvation from day to day, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates that word tell into euangeliso, which is the word to bring good news, to preach good news. That's where we get our English word for evangelism. You see, when we get a glimpse of God's glory, of God's victory, when we're reminded again of his marvelous works on our behalf, then when that becomes real to your heart, we have to tell others. We have to proclaim the good news. We have to preach the gospel. And so we have a king who saves. And so we proclaim his glory in salvation. And then we have a beautiful king in verses 6 through 9. Thanks. We can put 2 and 3 down here, Andre. Verses 6 through 9, not like you're putting a pet down, but that's a uh, splendor. Look, look at the nouns here used to describe this king. In verse 6, it's splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. And verse 7, it's glory and strength. Verse 8, glory. Verse 9, splendor of holiness. And you hear all of those nouns, and you begin to realize that the psalmist is trying to describe the indescribable beauty of the king reigning from the throne, right? And when you see Yahweh in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty, in all of his strength, in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, it's so utterly overwhelming, right? Can, can, can you see who God is? Can you see his beauty? When you focus on that, when you meditate on that, it becomes so overwhelming that all you can do is fall on your knees. All you can do is tremble. All you can do is worship. This is the king that reigns, right? And so when verse 10 says Yahweh reigns, in verses 11 and 12, all the earth joins together, rejoicing and singing for joy. Because this king, this great king, this beautiful king, this king who saves is the king who reigns. And because he reigns, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to establish a new world. He's going to establish a new world. So we have a new song, a great king, and now thirdly, a new world. Can we put verse 10 up on the screen, please, Andre? Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, 
To understand verse 10, we need to get a little bit technical and talk about verb tenses. And again, some of you are going to have horrible flashbacks to eighth grade. There are basically three verb tenses, right? Past, present, and future in English. Now, for you grammar Nazis out there, English professors, I know that you can get up to 13 different English verb tenses if you can include the continuous future and the present perfect. But basically, there are three, okay? Past, present, and future. But in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, there are basically two verb tenses. And there are the perfect and the imperfect. And the perfect is used to designate completed action. And the imperfect is used to designate incomplete action. And of the four verbs here in verse 10, only the first one is perfect. Yahweh reigns. And the sense here is that Yahweh's reign is so complete that he's reigning in his fullness, right? It's something that has happened in the past and is happening now. But the next three verbs are all imperfect. And usually when they're imperfect, they're translated into the future because it's an incomplete action. And you have that in it, sh uh, it shall never be moved and he will judge. But I'm going to argue this morning that it would be better to translate, yes, the world is established because it's incomplete, because it's imperfect to say that the world will be established. The world will be established. Why is that important? Why, why would I take time in a sermon to argue over Hebrew grammar, right? That seems kind of silly. But look at it. The world is established. And then what does it go on to say? It shall never be moved. Is this world a world that will never be moved? Is that what the Bible teaches? Revelation 21 says that the first heavens and the first earth will pass away. This world will be moved. This world will pass away. Right? So which world is it? Which world is it that will be established? Well, Hebrew parallelism here has the answer. You see, yes, the world will be established. It will never be moved. Is followed by what? He will judge the peoples with equity. Okay? So the psalmist here is explaining to you that this new world that will be established, how is it going to be established? He will judge the peoples with equity. This new world is going to come because God is going to bring a final judgment. And when he brings that final judgment, he's going to establish a new world. And it's that world, not this one, that will never be moved. You see, this world will be moved. But the city of God, the new heavens and the new earth, it will never be moved. Let me explain that to you a little bit further. Let, let's look at Psalm 46, and we'll pull it up on the screen here. Psalm 46 talks about the way this world can be moved, but the city of God will not be moved. Therefore, Psalm 40, 46, verse 2, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Does that sound like a world that will never be moved? You've got mountains falling into the sea, right? You've got uh, sea, seas that are, that are rumbling and roaming, uh, waters roaring. Verse 4, 
But there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You see, this world will be shaken. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. We've seen the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire and the Arab Empire and the Mongol Empire and the British Empire. And all of those have come and gone. And now we may be at the height of the American Empire. But one day this world will pass away and the American Empire will be no more. But in the city of God, in the new heavens and the new earth, in this new world that God will establish, it will never be moved. And he's going to establish this new world by his judgment. Thanks, Andre. Let's look at that judgment. How is God going to judge the world? Verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. And then verse 13, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And faithfulness there could also be translated truth. So he's going to judge the world in equity, righteousness, and truth. And by this judgment, he will establish this new world and he's going to reign. And it will be a perfect government, not a government that shuts down. And it'll be a perfect world. It will be justice as it was meant to be. Justice as it was meant to be. You know, we all have this intuitive, this intrinsic sense of justice, right? And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, one of the things that you need to wrestle with is where this sense of justice comes from. As a believer, I would argue, with, I would argue that you find this sense of justice intrinsic in us because we're created in the image of God. But if we somehow climbed out of a primordial ooze and evolved into sentient beings, how is it that every culture in every era of human history throughout the world has had some sense of justice? Right? Even our kids, what is it, at age three or so, they have a sense of justice, right? Because they begin to cry out what? That's not fair, right? That's not fair. They, they know, right? We know, and, and did you teach them that? Did you have to go, okay, this is fair? This, no, they just knew. They knew intrinsically. They knew inherently. They knew instinctively. We know when we've been slighted. We know when we've been wronged. We can smell injustice a mile away. One of my favorite movies uh, of all time is Shawshank Redemption. And in Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman plays the character Red, and he talks about his friend Andy DeFreeze, who's played by Tim Robbins. And Andy DeFreeze is slandered, and he's falsely accused, and he's unjustly uh, condemned, and he's unfairly arrested, and then he's tormented by those in authority. But the brilliance of the movie of Shawshank Redemption is that at the end, 
that injustice is made right, that injustice is vindicated. vindicated. You see all of the injustice that is heaped upon Andy in all of his life, and finally at the end, Andy escapes, and he's free. And that appeals to our heart so much because we long for a world where all the injustice that we've been immersed in, right, is finally set right, where all that injustice is finally vindicated. And there's injustice around us at every turn. You can't read the news or, or talk to people or, or see others without, experience, without experiencing this injustice. And sometimes I get a little overwhelmed at this injustice. And then I remind myself, he is coming. And he will judge the earth. And on this side of the New Testament, we know more about who he is. You see, just as Jesus in the first coming inaugurated his kingdom here on earth, so too at the second coming, he's going to come and that kingdom will be consummated. He is coming and he will judge the earth. Right? And when he does so, everything that is broken will be made whole and everything that's been twisted will be straightened, and everything that's lacking will be filled, and every wrong will finally be righted. And then we will have a world that's filled with justice. And do you know how Jesus is going to do this? Do you know how Jesus is going to bring us a world of justice? It's by taking injustice on himself. You see, Jesus, too, was slandered and falsely accused and unjustly condemned and unfairly sentenced and tormented by the authorities. But he didn't escape. There was no escape for Jesus. You see... Instead of escape, the injustice of the cross stole even Jesus' final breath. But there is vindication. It's just not for Jesus. The innocent becomes guilty so that the guilty might become innocent. Jesus takes all of the injustice on himself at the cross so that in this new world of justice, this new world that he's bringing, you, the unjust, might be vindicated. That you, the sinner, might be righteous. That you, the prisoner, might finally be set free. Can you feel the hope of that new world? Can you see why one day all the earth will burst forth in songs of joy and a cacophony of praise? Jesus is coming. So let us sing a new song for a new world because of a great king. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you help us to sing?
Would you help us to make melody in our hearts with a new song, with an ever new song? Father, would we see you face to face? Would we see you in your glory and in your splendor and in your beauty? And would you cause us to have a hope of the new world where one day everything will be set right? And we ask this in Jesus' name because of his deep, deep love. We pray, amen.